Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, your host for the show. In this week's episode, our 49th on the show, I thought that it might be fun to share some insights from a field study that I conducted with one of my collaborators on a beautiful volcanic island located in the Mediterranean Sea, situated approximately 95 kilometers south of Sicily and 67 kilometers north of Tunisia. The island is called Pantelleria, and while you can see the Tunisian coastline on a clear weather day, this is actually an Italian island. Pantelleria belongs to the province of Trapani, and it is the largest of the Sicilian Isles, and is populated by roughly 7,000 inhabitants. The island is visited by tourists who come to enjoy its numerous natural attractions, such as the Specchio di Venere, which is a geothermally heated lake with healing muds, archaeological sites such as the Byzantine tombs, and local foods and beverages such as capers and the famous Pasito wine. Pantelleria is exceptionally biodiverse, with flora distributed across 73 families, including several endemic species such as Genista aspelthoides, Helichrysium rupestre, Limonium species, Mathiola incana, among others. The territory can be divided into three different bioclimatic belts, and this is based on the variable elevation levels across the island. The highest part of the island, locally known as the Montagna Grande, sits at over 600 meters above sea level, and this is considered a meso-Mediterranean subhumid climate, which fosters the rich growth of ferns and humid forest while the lower parts of the island are much drier, and those regions are classified as inframediterranean semi-arid regions and thermo-mediterranean dry regions. And as a result, the island includes many different ecosystems, and this ranges from shrublands to oak forests full of mushrooms and pine forests. Our field expedition was conducted in 2014 together with Professor Alessandro Saita of the University of Palermo, and the team included my husband Marco and our youngest child, who was one years old at the time. Why did we go to Pantelleria? Well, in 1969, a pair of anthropologists, Galt and Galt, undertook an ethnobotanical survey of the island, focusing on a single community, the community of Kama. Since then, a number of botanical studies concerning the local wild flora and cultivation of the Zabibo grape and capers has been conducted, but none of these investigated the traditional ecological knowledge regarding the use of wild plants and fungi. We wanted to document the current levels of traditional knowledge concerning these wild species, especially focusing on the uses of plants and mushrooms related to food and medicine. And we did this with a series of 42 interviews conducted across six communities on the island. Our aim was to examine shifts in traditional ecological knowledge, represented in terms of loss or gain of specific species uses in comparison to that 1969 Galt and Galt study. All of our interviews were conducted in person in Italian with prior informed consent. 
That's something that's important for ethical conduct of research in these kinds of studies. We employ two different means of eliciting responses concerning traditional practices. First, we asked informants to free list the most commonly used plants for wild foods, for general medicine, and in particular for skin remedies. And then we also had them view and discuss a booklet that we composed of photos from species that were originally reported in that 1969 study. So in addition to having this prior study to compare our results to, the island of Pantelleria provides a number of other unique opportunities for examining how traditional ecological knowledge can change and shift over time. So number one, it's a very isolated and climatically harsh environment. Some of the key environmental factors that local people dealt with in the past included scarce access to fresh water, with the only source in the past for personal use coming from the very limited rainfall that was collected using a special kind of roof architecture typical of the local traditional homes that are known as dumuso. And these homes are made of stone and volcanic rock, and they feature a really unusual white rounded roof with connections to an underground cistern. Again, this is to collect any rainfall and also as little as the morning dew every morning. Today, however, fresh water is delivered to the island by ship, and this is then bussed around on trucks and the local cisterns underneath homes are filled for use in the countryside. Now when it comes to plants in all of the aspects of local cultivation, there's a lot of effort placed into optimizing the use of very limited rainfall and protecting the plants from harsh winds, salty air, and the sun. So in response to these environmental factors, Local traditional ecological knowledge has developed over time to address these, and you can still see its implementation across the current landscape. For example, volcanic rocks are stacked to form terrace gardens and vineyard border walls. And you can see these amazing networks of structures all across the landscape, especially in any of the cultivated landscape. Now, one other thing that I found to be fascinating was that citrus trees are protected in a really unique way. They actually build entire towers out of volcanic rock to encircle a single orange tree. And if you think about why they would do this, well, number one, those trees are very susceptible to those harsh winds and salty air. And two, they would have been incredibly important as a source of essential vitamins like vitamin C to combat scurvy, um, especially in an area where maritime commerce and trade is super important. Now, likewise, olive trees are also protected from the wind by not only the construction of these volcanic rock border walls, but also from exceptionally heavy pruning, such that the olives actually grow very low to the ground and they never exceed the height of a fully grown adult person. So they're kind of like these bonsai shaped olive trees, the same species that you find on mainland Italy, but again, just cultivated through this means of heavy, heavy pruning. 
Another interesting aspect of this unique cultivation landscape is the way that certain wild plant species are collected and used to provide shade to seedlings, while others are used in gardens to protect plants, especially fruit trees, from damage by pests. Furthermore, these poisonous spurge plants, which belong to the Euphorbiaceae family, were also used to fish as a form of fish poison, while other wild species have been used to create these really interesting hunting tools. Collectively, this body of traditional ecological knowledge was absolutely crucial to human survival in this environment in the past. And a central aim of our study was to document the remaining knowledge in this domain, in the collective memory and practice of the people that continue to live on the island today. So, what did we find? Well, we documented uses of a total of 95 plant species and 17 fungal species. And this represents quite a bit of diversity um, on the taxonomic side. So that included 44 plant families and nine fungal families. And these were reported by a total of 42 local inhabitants that we interviewed on the island. Now, in comparison to the prior work by Galt and Galt, they documented 107 specific uses of local plant species in that survey that was conducted back in 1969. But 45 years later, 45 of these, representing 42% of the original species that were cited, were not even quoted. They weren't mentioned at all by any of our informants in our 2014 survey. And this refuted our original hypothesis that at least 80% of the previously documented species would remain in local memory or practice. So this is showing a certain loss in knowledge around the previously documented species. So what were these lost uses? Well, many of the previously reported species that have disappeared from the memory and practice of the Pantescan people today pertain to one of three cognitive domains. The first was animal feed. And in many of these cases, the animal feed itself had ethno-veterinary implications. In other words, it was medicinal food for the livestock that people were rearing to cultivate the landscape. The second domain pertained to plants that were very specific to wartime, and in particular this referred to World War II. And the third domain were plants that were used to treat spiritual illnesses. So this includes some of the um, illnesses that are very typical to this region, such as malocchio or evil eye, which is a kind of envy disorder where people believe that if someone envies your possessions that it can cause you to come down with a kind of illness and also fright disease known as scan 2. So the knowledge of plants to treat those types of ailments had also disappeared over this 45 year period. Some examples of species that were previously used for some of these different categories included um, the common polypody or polypodium vulgare used to both feed cows and also increase their milk production. There was a kind of nettle known as Urtica pluriifera, 
which is used as chicken bedding and also to stimulate the production of more eggs. And then other species, again, used for livestock feed, in some cases for specific animals. Um, for example, Genista cinerea was used particularly for goats. And then you had other wild plants used both as livestock feed and eaten by children as a kind of local snack. Now, when it came to wartime species, these were mainly pertaining to camouflage and to tobacco substitutes. Species that were used to treat spiritual illnesses included Ruta chalapensis, also known as the fringed rue, and this was particularly used to treat scantu, or that frights sickness. Moribium vulgare, or whorehound, was also used for fright sickness. Now regarding malocchio, or evil eye, rosemary was used to treat that. Now, why did knowledge of these uses decline? Well, for one, World War II has long since passed and there's no further need for plants to be used for camouflage or to um, be used as tobacco substitutes. And also changes, traditional knowledge concerning livestock rearing practices could be the result of local economic shifts away from agro-pastoralism. Again, much of the economy now is focused on cultivation of grapes, collection and production of capers, and the tourism industry. And lastly, disappearing practices concerning ritual healing are likewise reflected in the loss of traditional knowledge of ingredients used in these ceremonies. So as the actual healers have declined, so has the knowledge of those practices. Now, not all was lost, and this is really reflective of the concept that traditional knowledge is a dynamic and shifting process. Human knowledge um, really reflects what's necessary during those specific time periods. So while there were 45 particular uses that we weren't able to um, document in our follow-up study, we did find an additional 235 specific uses that were newly documented, and these concerned both local plants and fungi. Now, the number of newly documented species can both attest to the robust nature of the investigation into local traditional ecological knowledge, but can also reflect differences in the methodologies used between our two studies. A limitation is that we just don't know from that 1969 survey the level of detail concerning the number of people interviewed, the genders, ages, whether or not they were specialist or non-specialist when it came to the knowledge of local flora. However, based on the existing data from both studies, we can approach the analysis from the perspective that while there was a significant loss in traditional ecological knowledge, as evidenced by some species no longer remaining in the memory or practice today, there were also potentially some new gains, especially regarding newly introduced fungi. And so let's dive into some specific examples of how traditional knowledge around food and medicine shifted in this region over a span of 45 years. I want to begin with a discussion of spiritual illnesses and how 
their perception and treatment has impacted the loss of traditional ecological knowledge of species used in ritual healing. There's a local saying concerning the use of the fringed rue or ruta chalapensis, and it goes like this. Aruta animalastuta, which roughly translates to the ruta destroys every disease. Interestingly, however, while several of our study informants were able to state that they knew what rue was when they were shown a photo of it, and in some cases they could even say it was used for this or that illness, they didn't really understand how or why it was applied. Now today, there's some new knowledge regarding the use of rue in flavoring grappa, but this is not really a local practice as grappa is not made in great quantities in, by the households that live here, but rather this represents an imported piece of knowledge that's likely been brought there by visiting tourists from northern Italy or by other means such as TV programs on the topic. Likewise, while there's still knowledge of some of the basic causative parameters concerning SCAN2, or that spirit illness which involves an event involving a shock to the person, such as fear or surprise from an unexpected encounter with a snake, little was known about the means of treatment today. Several of the people that we spoke to cited the diagnostic practice of taking measurements of the body with a string from the head to the toe and then from fingertip to fingertip. And if the measurements don't match up, you could have scan two. The means of healing scan two, however, involved the intervention of specialist healers who used prayers and rituals involving plants. And it was reported repeatedly to us that all of these healers have passed away some as recently as just a few years ago. Now, what is interesting about this diagnostic process that some of the folks mentioned was that a similar process involving body measurement with a string has also been documented for another folk illness known as Maldarco or rainbow illness. We documented this practice in the Basilicata province of Southern Italy. And in Maldarco, another species of rue, known as Ruta graviolens, is used in the treatment of the malady, and it involves drinking a tea of rue. Folk illness beliefs concerning the causation of Maldarco, however, differ from those of Scan 2. Rather than fright, Maldarco is believed to be transmitted by looking at a rainbow while urinating outdoors, and it is not at all linked to this fright event. Let's talk about mushrooms, and I really want to focus on edible mushrooms that are found in Panseria. While the topic of fungi was not covered in the Galt 1969 study, we nevertheless considered these findings to be important for inclusion in our study, as they provided another perspective on the traditional knowledge of wild edible substances. There are five mushrooms that were readily recognized by the majority of people that we spoke to, and this included Agaricus arvensis, or the horse mushroom, Boletus arius, or the queen bolette, Catharanthus lutescens, or yellowfoot, Lactarius deliciosus, or the saffron milk cap, and Suilus colinitis, the pinewood bolette. 
The cited species are all frequently collected by Pantascans. All of them belong to the ecological category of ectomycorrhizal fungi, except for the saprophytic horse mushroom. Three of these species grow exclusively in pine forest on the island, and this includes yellowfoot, the saffron milkcap, and the pinewood bullet mushroom. All of these are used as food by Pentascans, and with the recent institution of courses on fungi identification in the past 10 years on the island, their use is gradually increasing. Based on current trends, we predict that in the coming years, more edible species growing in Pantelleria will be appreciated as foods, thanks to the interest shown by Pantescans for the identification of wild fungi that was prompted by outreach activities of local environmental associations. Now let's get into one of my favorite subjects, and that is edible wild plants. On Pantelleria, there are a number of wild plants that can serve as sources of food for the local population. The most commonly listed wild foods include Funiculum vulgare, or fennel, Beta vulgaris, subspecies maritima, locally known as Gira, Sanchis oleraceus, or common sow thistle, Terrasicum officinale, or dandelion, and Rosmarinus officinalis, or rosemary. And these are all species that were spontaneously sighted without any kind of cue from us. However, when we showed the participants our photo book of previously documented species, others emerged with high frequency of citation, high recognition by the survey participants. And this included fennel, the elm leaf blackberry, rosemary, myrtle, borage, strawberry tree, the prickly pear fig, um, asparagus, chestnut, dandelion, and this kind of wild um, beet. Now, when it came to the most cited wild food, hands down, funiculum vulgare, or fennel, was the most popular. And it was reported as being eaten both as a spice ingredient where people will take the seeds or the flowers of the plant to use as a spice ingredient, or they'll eat the vegetative part, the stems and leaves, as a boiled vegetable when the plant is very young. Rubus ulmifolius, or the elm leaf blackberry, was the second most cited wild plant, but interestingly, it wasn't mentioned to be a major food source during the free listing exercise. It was only mentioned after seeing that visual cue. Food uses of these two species, along with others, including wild spinach, borage, asparagus, chicory, um, prickly pear fig, strawberry tree, rosemary, um, and so on, were also mentioned in that early 1969 study, showing clear examples of how wild foods and their specific wild food uses have persisted over the past half century. Now, one of the most interesting and common accounts concerning wild plant foods documented during our study concerned the fruits of Arbutus unido, or the strawberry tree. Locally, it's known as mbriacola, which when pronounced in the local dialect sounds similar to ubriaco, or drunken. Many people cited this as a favorite plant whose fruits can be eaten raw off the trees during the time of the olive harvest. 
Universally, people also recounted that moderation was necessary when you eat this fruit because if you eat too many, it could result in a sensation of drunkenness and even euphoria, but also led to a number of digestive issues, including stomach ache and diarrhea. So the lesson here is don't pick out on the wild strawberry fruits while you're picking the olives because it can have some downsides, although they are delicious when you eat them. Um, now, this could be due to the initiation of fermentation of the mature fruits while they're still on the tree. And indeed, the fruits of the strawberry tree are used to create spirits in other parts of the Mediterranean. For example, in Portugal, they're used to make aguardente de medronjo. And also in Spain, it's aguardente de madroño. And in Italy, it's also known as corbezzolo. It's Kumaro in Greece and Raki in Albania. Um, but this use, this specific use to take the fruits and make an alcoholic spirit was not documented in our work here on Pantelleria. Now let's get to some examples of specific medicinal plants because the use of wild species as medicine does continue to play a really important role in healthcare in the Mediterranean. I want to begin with a plant locally known as Churi di Marva. Now Marva is the dialect name for Malva. Churi is a dialect name for flowers. So what this translates to is flowers of Malva or mallow flowers. In this particular case on Pantelleria, the most prominent Malva species used as medicine is a species known as Malva arborea. And Malva arborea is a large, robust, um, herbaceous plant. The common name is tree mallow. And this species can be found both growing spontaneously in the countryside, but most frequently we saw it often in family gardens or near homes. The most common preparation of the plant is to harvest the flowers and dry them for storage in later use in a variety of tisanes, either on their own or in combinations with other species. And it really depends on the medical ailment that's being treated. The most frequently cited use is as a tisane for stomach ache and to relieve constipation. Another interesting new use came from accounts of panuzzo di marva, which is a phrase, a local phrase, to describe a practice in childhood in which the seed coats of this species were peeled off and sucked on as a sweet snack. And again, this is an example of unique knowledge held by children of snack plants that can be found in the wild. Now, while there are other wild Malva species that incur on the island, including Malva sylvestris and Malva niacensis, um, and these also have some similar reported uses, Malva orborea, in this case on this island, is the overwhelming favorite. Another really fascinating plant is locally known as Master Giovanni or Maestro or Teacher Giovanni. And this refers to a plant species scientifically known as Daphne nidium. The English common name of Daphne nidium is the flax-leaved Daphne. It has a number of uses, both in general use categories, including in ethno-veterinary and household applications. It grows at high elevations on the island, 
and is most commonly collected on the centrally located volcanic mountain known as Montaña Grande. The most common medicinal use, however, is to peel off its very flexible bark and use it as a wrap to bind minor lacerations as a hemostatic. In other words, it can help as a kind of natural band-aid to stop bleeding. Another really fascinating use is as an insect repellent, where locals will actually take whole branches of this plant and toss it into dog pens to rid them of pests like fleas. Now, moving beyond food uses and medicinal uses of plants, Pantelleria is home to an amazing assortment of knowledge concerning plants for a variety of household uses. I want to start with a description of some of the plants used as agricultural tools. To understand the necessity for tools, first though, you have to understand one of the major wild sources of food and also a major source of income for local inhabitants, and that is the collection of wild capers. Now, capers are scientifically known as Caperus spinosa, subspecies rupestris, and these are semi-cultivated across the island and then brine fermented for both personal use and for export and sale. Now, what's fascinating um, is that the caper itself is not the fruit of the plant. In fact, it is the unopened, immature flower. The smaller the size of the flower, the more value that the caper has. If the plant goes to fruit and you collect the fruit, those are known as caper berries, and those can also be brine fermented. But the primary um, harvest of capers is, again, those unopened flower buds that are then lacto-fermented in um, brine. You also have on the island the cultivated grape known as Zabibo grapes. And the scientific name for this, of course, is Vetus vinifera. These are highly prized both for personal use and again also for sale as value-ended products such as wine and raisins. Now, while neither of these species appear directly in our informant data, as these are considered to be a core part of island agriculture and not wild species, we did document a large number of plants that are used to create tools for both their cultivation and for their harvest. And this is most evident concerning the species that are used in traditional basket weaving. Various types of baskets are created with wild plants for such purposes. And each of these baskets has a different particular name and a very specific function on the island. I wanna give you some examples of these now. The first is panaro. A panaro is a basket that has a handle for collecting wild fruits and berries. A canistru, on the other hand, is a basket without a handle, and this is used for collecting capers. A cudino is a double-handed basket used for collecting grapes. A kufa is a basket that's carried by a donkey, and a cufino di tartise is a basket used for carrying volcanic rocks that are used to build those protective walls and towers that are built around those highly valued fruit trees. Certain species of plants are used for different basket types and different parts of the baskets as each of these species can offer differing um, 
characters or different qualities in terms of strength, weight, and flexibility. Some of these include Arundo Donax or the giant reed, um, Daphne nidium or that flax-leafed um, uh, Daphne species we discussed earlier. Um, also, they use plants like Pistacia lentiscus, Myrtus communis, Olea europea, and Filaria media, which can um, also offer some harder um, woods. Interestingly, also fishing nets and traps that were also made primarily with local plant materials. However, much of the knowledge concerning this traditional basket weaving practice is in decline, and there's only a few local people that remain living that currently practice the art on the island today. Now, there's something to be said about being an island. Inhabitants of islands have not only the terrestrial landscape on which to survive and subsist and to grow crops, they also have the amazing resources offered up by the sea. And traditional maritime practices have played a huge role for Pantascans as inhabitants of a small landmass surrounded by the Mediterranean Sea. In the past, boats were made by wild plants found on the island, as were many of the fishing tools, which includes things ranging from nets and traps and even fish poisons. Today, again, the art of weaving traditional fish traps and nets has nearly disappeared. And likewise, the use of local plants as fish poisons is no longer practiced. In fact, informants reported it to be illegal to practice this tradition today. However, knowledge of these practices was still reported in the more elderly informants, and this was based on their own personal experiences during their youth. Let's start with one of the plants that is extremely abundant across the terrestrial landscape of the island, and this is the genus Euphorbia, which is part of the Spurge or Euphorbiaceae family. These are collectively called by the folk generic name of tasu by local people. The latex, which is a milky white color coming from these species, is widely recognized as toxic to humans, and some are considered more poisonous than others. Indeed, there are two species that are cited only for their recognition as a nuisance on the island, and this includes Euphorbia heliscopia and Euphorbia terracina. And this is due to skin reactions that can occur, or contact dermatitis that can occur, after contact with them, or damage to the eyes that can occur if the eyes are exposed to the latex. On the other hand, there are two other species, and this includes Euphorbia dendroides, or the tree spurge, and Euphorbia sagittalis, which are recognized as a poison or a nuisance plant on the island. However, they're also highly valued as tools in traditional fishing practices. And this is because you can use both of them um, as a fish poison. Both of these, in fact, were reported as being used by pounding the leaves and placing them in a closed canal on the island, then simply by scooping up stunned fish with a basket. Euphorbia dendroides has an additional and more frequently cited use of weaving the branches that drip the milky latex into fish traps for open sea fishing. The job of actually collecting and weaving the branches into fish traps was often delegated to young boys from around the age of 10 to 12 years old.
Traditional ecological knowledge of fish poisons represents an important reservoir of information for survival in times of food scarcity. In isolated island environments, this is exceptionally important should there ever be an interruption of trade and exchange outside of the island. Various euphorbia species have also been reported as fish poisons in other parts of the world and are still used today by indigenous peoples of Guyana and tropical Africa, for example. Beyond the use of certain poisonous plants in fishing, there are also some other really interesting applications of poisons when it comes to agriculture. And I'm going to start with that of Dremia maritima, locally known as Shipudatsu. In English, the common name is the sea squill, or simply squill. Similar to what was reported by Galt and Galt in their 1969 survey, this species is still used as a means of protecting a garden harvest from would-be vegetable and fruit thieves. The bulb juice of the species is actually extracted and smeared onto your favorite crops in an effort to punish potential thieves. And the punishment comes in the form of some acute diarrhea because the juice from the bulb of this plant has very strong laxative action. Other uses that were not reported in the previous study include planting a few bulbs, two to three, at the base of each fruit tree, especially for figs, as a means of repelling insects and rodents that would otherwise damage the fruit. Research into the phytochemistry of this species has revealed a number of cardiac glycosides, or natural products that act on heart tissue. It also has a long history of use for various purposes, including medicine, and the earliest written reports go back to the Ebers Papyrus in 1500 BCE. More recently, following its introduction to North America after World War II, it was examined for potential as a rodenticide in California. In addition to these very specific uses, whether it be for food or medicine or poison, there were some plants that had multiple functions, and one of the most prominent ones that popped up in the study was that of Quercus ilex, or the evergreen oak. This was surprising in a way to us because it's not a human food or a medicine. Instead, it's really valued for a number of other important applications for local people. And this included Number one, as livestock fodder. So the fruits of the plant, or the acorns, are fed to livestock, and especially for pigs. Another really fond use is the taking the fruits, or the acorns, to use them as a spinning top. The local name for this toy is Zizula, and many, many people reported the joy they had as children in spinning these acorns um, in a local game. Other uses of the evergreen oak include in home construction. The durable wood can be used to make a mazulo, which is a special tool that they create to uh, form that characteristic roofing of the traditional island home. Again, the, the demuso that's created and crafted in a way to collect the morning dew and any limited rainfall that goes into a cistern under the home. This form of construction, again, is incredibly important to the survival of local people, um, especially so in the past, as there is no local sources of fresh water for drinking on the island. Other agricultural tools include the use of uh, the wood to make hoes and shovels. 
And then it also is used in firewood, charcoal, boot construction, um, even as a coffee substitute during wartime, and as an environmental indicator of where to find some of the favored edible mushrooms. Now, second only to the evergreen oak, the prickly pear cactus, or Opuntia ficus indica, which is locally known as Ficudindia, was highly ranked as a multifunctional plant. This plant is especially abundant across the island in the lower elevations, and its reported uses were distributed across four major use categories, and this includes food, ethno-veterinary applications, household applications, and human medicine. This also included five subcategories for human medicine, ranging from dermatologic applications, musculoskeletal, gastrointestinal, respiratory, and urological applications. I'd like to highlight a few of the most interesting of these uses because they're so specific to the ability to survive in this harsh environmental condition of this island. Um, as reported previously in the 1969 survey, the paddles of the cactus continue to be used as a means of providing shade and protection against the wind for young plants. And this is especially important for the cultivation of tomatoes and eggplants. To achieve this, a partial depth slice is made from side to side of the cactus paddle such that it can be folded and propped up on its side with the young plant positioned in the center. Another widely reported use of this species includes the fruits being used as a source of food and the flowers as a tisane for diuretic properties. Interestingly, there are some really specific methods used to access the most favored fruits. The results of the first fruiting are actually knocked off the plant and fed to the pigs, and this has been reported elsewhere in Sicily. The timing of this activity is strategically staggered over a period of weeks in the early summer, so that in the end, the sweet second fruiting, which is more desired by humans for consumption in the period of weeks in September, it allows those second fruitings to come out in a staggered way so that you don't just get all of your harvest at once, but again, can lengthen the time that you're able to harvest and consume this source of wild food. So this is a really interesting way of taking a wild food ingredient and ensuring that it can last longer periods, shoring up better senses of food security. Another interesting use of the prickly pear that contributed to food security was reported by a number of the most elderly informants as a memory from their childhood. And this is how they described it. In the past, young boys would take the paddle of the prickly pear fig along with the stems of a rundodonax, which is a giant kind of cane or giant reed. And they'd use these to create traps for a small bird known as petiroso. This trap was built by cutting a square hole into the center of the paddle and making a window with the bars inside of the hole using strips of the split up reed. A small hole in the ground would then be dug out and the paddle trap would be propped over the hole with a stick or a piece of cane holding it in place. At the bottom of the stick, they would put a little worm that would be placed such that when a bird approaches to eat the worm, it would then be trapped in the hole as the paddle fell down with that little um, window made of the giant reed allowing the bird to survive until the boy returns to check his trap. 
and these were actually eaten in the past. Today, though, informants said that the bird is protected and thus trapping is now illegal, but they have a lot of fond memories of the practice that still survive in the eldermost generations. Beyond the fascinating uses of wild species, again, I just want to highlight some of the amazing factors that are in play on this island that allow for a robust agricultural system in a very water-scarce environment. The last example I want to give you is that of the Zabibo grape. Now, this is a special grape that is cultivated by actually digging a conical trench into the soil, and the part of the grapevine that is exposed is actually exposed beneath ground level, but in this open conical space. And water is strategically added to those conical spaces to ensure that the grapes can grow with limited water. The grapes, once harvested, are then sun-dried to make raisins, and then a special very sweet wine known as pasito wine is created from these sugar-enriched grapes. You can find pasito wine on the international market, um, and it really is a unique uh, cultivar, a unique way of growing these grapes in a very interesting, rugged environment. All right, let's wrap up. What did we learn? Well, we first documented the current state of traditional ecological knowledge concerning wild plants and fungi on Pantelleria Island. Through examining a report on the ethnobotanical practices recorded 45 years ago, we were able to take a look at potential shifts in traditional ecological knowledge. And while we recorded a loss in the number of plant uses previously documented in that earlier study, and this specifically related to livestock rearing practices, wartime practices, and ritual healing, we also documented some practices that were not likely to have been in practice 45 years ago. This is most clear when we consider the use of edible wild fungi, which were widely reported as a new trend experienced during later adulthood of many of our informants. This set of traditional ecological knowledge was introduced to the island via a number of avenues, including tourism and chefs coming from mainland Italy, as well as by local educational workshops, books, and national TV programs concerning food. On the other hand, there were a number of plant uses that were reported as a practice and recalled from childhood experiences, and these have primarily dealt with foraging, fishing, and hunting activities. Some such practices have disappeared now due to legal bans, for example, the use of fish poisons and the hunting of certain bird species through traps is now reported to be prohibited. These practices, however, were recalled with great fondness and represent an important part of the cultural identity of the local population. There were numerous specialized skills tailored to surviving in a physically isolated location, and these are very characteristic of the body of traditional ecological knowledge here. Self-reliance on the generation or wild procurement of food and medicine for people and their livestock under conditions of limited fresh water, harsh sun and wind, forms the basis of the adaptive cultural identity of the Pantescan people. Looking forward, 
a decline in traditional ecological knowledge could eventually lead to the loss of much of this body of knowledge as generations that hold on to this oral history pass away. So using comprehensive descriptions of remaining traditional knowledge in this study, future work could further address the driving forces behind traditional ecological knowledge shifts, both again in terms of gains and losses, and examine the role of this knowledge in promoting a sense of community resilience in the face of changing climate and environmental factors. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded at home during the COVID-19 social distancing period. You can subscribe to the podcast anywhere you stream podcasts. You can find out more information on this and many other research papers by my research group at our website at www.ethnobotanica.us, and that's spelled E-T-N-O-B-O-T-A-N-I-C-A dot U-S. Check out the drop-down menu for publications and access full text copies of all of our papers on the site. We've got a fabulous lineup of topics and shows for you this season, so keep tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.